0: I'm Tina Sika,
1: And you're listening to General Insight Unit. Um, this week, we are back with uh, with Tina Sika, returning guest, um, to talk about her new book, Climate Technology, Gender and Justice, The Standpoint of the Vulnerable. Uh, so yeah, Tina, um, w- what's this book all about?
0: It is a uh, feminist uh, sort of analysis of geoengineering using feminist science studies. Uh, so I apply a... Feminist empiricism to uh, examine some of the assumptions around uh, the science surrounding um, climate geoengineering.
2: Yeah, and um, I mean, I just wanted to say congratulations on finishing this book. It is like a full book length project. Um, and yeah. A, a thorough analysis.
0: Yeah, it actually, it, it, it took a, a, a good chunk of time to kind of write and then edit and make sure the science was all, you know, copacetic and everything, and then the entire publishing process. So it, it's been a, a a while in the making, but uh, yeah, I'm excited it finally came
1: out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the, this was in the making back when we had you on the show last year, like almost a year ago. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And um, for any listeners that are following along, yeah, this is a, this is very much a continuation of the um, of the work from that episode. Um, so, um, I guess one sort of uh, way to kick off the conversation here is to ask, um, uh, like, why is why did you feel that this this work needed to be done and needed to be published? Well, that's not a dig. No, that's that's just an, an invitation for discussion. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I, I, you know, the conversations around, uh, you know, climate change sort of ramping up in the political climate in the States and the denialism and just sort of the the kind of frenzy around uh, climate change as a, you know, a sociological phenomenon, as a scientific artifact, as a, uh, you know, an interdisciplinary site of study, I I just, you know, sort of looking at the science um around climate change and some of the solutions. And then that kind of paired with my interest in feminist science studies or sort of this general critique of scientific practice as problematic in the sense of, of gender, but going beyond the issue of pipeline and women in STEM and and uh you know uh just just the kind of liberal feminist uh, critique of of science and trying to get towards a kind of feminist examination of science that looked at the assumptions uh, and the values and the presuppositions behind it and and looked at different ways that we could do science. And I thought it would be interesting to kind of pair the two and, and try to see if there were spaces in which we could critique scientific practice, uh, use it with a gendered analysis, uh, and not open the door to denialism, if you know what I mean.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's very important, uh, to, I think, think about these, these issues in, in the way that you have, because, um, the critiques that you bring up certainly ring true, um, especially when you get into the the concrete examples um, in the book of like how science is done and where these perspectives have have uh, value in critiquing that that methodology. Um, but it never, you know, in reading the book, it, you never get to that point of sort of being like, "Well, it's all just opinion," and you know, it's all just. Uh, sort of these, um, language games that are paid are played among scientists and, and don't really have any, uh, kind of broader validity beyond that. Um, so yeah, that's, that's quite an accomplishment.
0: Yeah. It was, it was a, a concern for me in in trying to find a approach to science rooted in, in feminist praxis that, uh, you know, pulled on and and tried to, you know, probe the presuppositions, but did so in a way that didn't lead to relativism. And so, you know, I go through some other um, frameworks as well and, you know, critique ecofeminism and these other uh, perspectives. It was funny. I actually, uh, last year was in Edinburgh for a a conference and I presented um, and there were two people, it was a, it was a sort of um, risk communication and, and science conference, and there were two, like a father-son team who was there to kind of push the climate denialism uh, mm. factor, and they came to my talk um and, you know, later on, I sort of found out that they thought maybe they had found a a, a colleague or a mm. <laughs> comrade in, in their denialism, and mm. they were quite disappointed in the talk.
1: <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, just kind of following on from that, like, I mean, uh, there's it's sort of very interesting in your book that, like, um, it, it's that this is a pretty scathing sort of critique of uh, the, the state of... Um, uh, climate science as it stands or just like as it's the state of science as it stands but it also it definitely holds open the possibility of alternatives and in fact in many cases you're the, the whole framing is like we're looking for an alternative way of doing science not a sort of way of doing anti-science yeah, yeah
0: and, and i like helen longino who's the the scholar the, the academic that i pull from um where she's saying you know not doing uh, a feminine science, but doing science as a feminist. Mm-hmm. And so it's this sort of idea that that not that there is something essentialist or some kind of feminine characteristic that can be applied to science, but it's this idea that given the life experiences, socialization processes, the sort of life histories of women, um, that there are different perspectives to to bear and ones that are uh, rooted in the experience of, of being a woman and, and having this sort of gendered existence and yeah. so it's it's harnessing that uh, experience to change science not that there is something characteristically universal about what that might be mm-hmm. but it's that you know you are are doing science as a as a feminist, and that kind of political um, activity that feminists have engaged in can be harnessed to examine science.
2: Yeah, and it, it seems like drawing on Longinot, you, you really focus in on this idea of sort of scientific virtues, um, feminist scientific virtues, uh, as an approach for kind of rethinking methodology. Uh, I, th- I thought that was quite a interesting approach in itself.
0: Yeah, I really like the way that she t- kind of takes Thomas Kuhn's um, values around, you know, accuracy and simplicity and fruitfulness and all, all that sort of thing and, and says that, okay, those are um, values that are brought to science So what are some feminist values? And then she juxtaposes those with, you know, her, her uh, novelty, heterogeneity, Focus on human needs, diffusion of power, uh, and so it's it's trying to develop this parallel, but uh, saying it's it's complementary. And the only the only one that overlaps is the empirical adequacy.
2: Right. Yeah. And I found it quite interesting as, as like somebody who studied some of the sort of philosophy of science and, and uh, historian of science people that came before Kuhn um, and kind of laid the groundwork for his work because it, it really sounds like these values, um, that you're, uh, espousing or Longinot knows espousing, um, have a lot more kind of consonance with that interwar generation of like socialist science, uh, people like, uh, from Vienna and so on, um, creating the encyclopedia of science, um, it's yeah like these these kinds of ideas about being more context aware having more pluralism all that kind of stuff it, it really seemed to resonate with that, that like earlier generation of um, philosophy of science people that that were kind of suppressed in in the as a result of the cold war yeah so um just to, to, to sort of nail it down a little bit more for the listeners
1: um could you give us a rundown of of longino's ideas i believe believe this is what's referred to as feminist contextual empiricism
0: yeah, so so feminist contextual empiricism is really it, it it's a model, sort of a two part model where Longinot is trying to rethink scientific practice. And uh, she focuses on re-articulating values around science and then also developing a model of, of truth in science that is consensus-based. So so her perspective, you know, in in, um, in kind of complementing Kuhn's uh, notions of good theory, uh, it's broad scope, fruitful, simple, consistent, and accurate. She uh, talks about uh, empirical adequacy is the first kind of epistemic virtue. And and there she's trying to say that there has to be an empirical sort of uh, an adequate fit between theory and observation. Um, That it, it has to be falsifiable, testable, you know, rooted in, in traditional scientific practice in a way. Um, and, and then she says it, you know, it needs to be novel, you know, which is something that traditional science tends to give short shrift to. So, um, not conservative in highlighting, uh, marginal findings and approaches, uh, heterogeneous, which I know we'll talk about, but that's sort of this idea that it, the theory doesn't have to be unified. It can be multi-causal. There's, you know, a traditional focus on one-to-one causality, um, mutual uh, interaction that theories are kind of complex, um, interconnected, that kind of network um, model of science um, and, and human needs is another one um, where science as a kind of platform on which to do things and the kind of questions we ask need to be really oriented towards um, you know, hunger and privation. Uh, it's kind of a pragmatic value. And then her diffusion of power one leads right into um, her second part of the model, which is really about this idea that truth is based in consensus and we need to have room and spaces for conversations around science where that's responsive to criticism, intellectual authority is equally dispersed more voices are brought in and that whatever comes out of those community kind of scientific community spaces that are inclusive is what counts as truthful science and that that is objective in a very robust way
1: yeah and um like and and in particular you're sort of leveraging this onto like uh the client contemporary climate science and i like it's that the way that climate science is being done right now, especially around notions of like geoengineering and using sulfur dioxide to block out the sun and that sort of stuff, um, doesn't display any of these characteristics, right? And is uh, is is deficient in um, in that way.
0: Yeah, the only one that I sort of, you know, in passing say that you know represents a, a kind of of virtue, the novelty, and it's not novelty substantively. It's sort of a superficial novelty and just being like an out-of-the-box kind of solution, Uh, but one that has very, very uh, problematic assumptions built around it, and ones that are really about, you know, not adequately considering the experience of marginalization and and climate change which is you know something that the science and the modeling the actual scientific practice itself is just not engaged in
1: mm-hmm. sure and um you you're augmenting the um feminist contextual empiricism with uh, feminist standpoint theory and uh, techno feminism could you give us a little bit of a rundown of what what you're picking from those uh, to to build up your um, your sort of lens that you're looking at the whole thing through
0: yeah, so I I do. It, it's funny when when I was writing it and and when I when I kind of did you know the research on the different approaches to feminist analysis. One of the I still like reading the feminist standpoint theory and the techno feminism, even though particularly standpoint theory I've got some issues with um, because standpoint theory is. It kind of you know it does a lot of what the feminist empiricism does but it um it doesn't it doesn't hold too fast with empirical adequacy so it's this like mm-hmm. you know idea that critiquing feminist empiricism is being too positivist and too anderson and it's this idea that Um, the marginalized perspective, whether it's one from like a post-colonial or a feminist or a experience of race, that it in and of itself is superior, that it will produce better knowledge, Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of science from below perspective. And I like, you know, Sandra Harding and Donna Haraway. Um, I think Sandra Harding has this example of indigenous women um, and their knowledge around fishing practices. And there was an example of of problems in, in uh, fish stocks being solved by indigenous women who had uh, sort of superior knowledge of the way that uh, fishing stocks were dwindling. And so they had this sort of solution that worked really well. And so it's this perspective that, um, you know, indigenous knowledge, uh, Theoretical, kind of more embodied approaches to science actually, from a, from a position of marginalization specifically, leads to better science. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of, you know, I, I have sympathy with that approach, that idea that, you know, maybe the empiricism that Longinot holds to, what would happen if, if we challenged that? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think asking those questions are really important. Um, and then the, the, the techno feminism, um, I think can contribute as well because it focuses on design. Um, and this idea that, uh, technology is a source and consequence of gender relations and that they're co-constituted. So, you know, gender is reflected in the design of the technology and then society kind of feeds into that. Um, And that one of the ways that we can sort of challenge, um, you know, a kind of masculinist, very Western-oriented approach to science is through practices that look at the design, so the material level as well as the discursive level. And that's something um, it, that's often missing in some of the um, feminist contextual uh, empiricism. So, this idea of the design that there are values embedded in the infrastructure of the technology that can be challenged and then maybe re articulated in ways that are pro social and that are more egalitarian.
2: Yeah, and I mean, that last point in particular seems to be, uh, you know, very much uh, similar to uh, what we talked about in our discussion of, like, uh, Fienberg's uh, transforming technology.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of resonance with them. I think well, with this this show right. It has an orbit around all these little these little bodies, right? And um, this resonance between all of them, like that, definitely resonates with Fienberg. It resonates with, say, uh, accelerate or even the um, the the work uh, like the cybernetic brain with Pickering. This this idea that like techno science could be so much more, but it's it's sort of shackled to this. Um, very restricted mindset and view of the world that, um, that, that keeps it, uh, keeps it restricted to one perspective, a privileged perspective that, um, directs everything.
0: Yeah. And I was actually introduced like years ago in that class that, uh, that we took, um, mm. on, uh, with Feinberg, uh, yeah. where, where we started to read Judy Wackman. Right. Uh, and that kind of was one of the areas where I was like, oh, you know, and, and the way that that kind of had a synergy with Feinberg's approach to the way that he, you know, studies the internet. It's a, like a design issue in, in, in some ways. And so that's really where I pulled a lot of it from.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think it's very fruitful when you look at something like geoengineering to consider how the sort of ongoing process of gendering happens in in the design and articulation of, of of the perspectives of the methodology of the design um, all those levels it's really interesting mm-hmm. so tina could you give us a, maybe a because i'm kind of aware that some of the
1: listeners or probably a lot of the listeners won't really be totally familiar with this kind of discourse like can you give us some examples of how that shakes out in geoengineering specifically
0: you mean the uh, different ways of kind of doing it?
1: Well, I guess I guess maybe firstly the deficiencies of the um, the current approach and uh, the ways in which it, it screws up um, in not considering um, more of the world, and then yeah, these sort of alternative proposals.
0: Yeah. Uh, so you know, one of the ways that you know I kind of think about it um, and and write about it in the text, you know, there's some some concrete examples that that you know you can kind of question, like. You know, why is carbon dioxide the control? In most of geoengineering modeling, it only tests, um, you know, if we're going to use geoengineering, how much does CO2 go up? How much does CO2 go down? Um, what about, you know, other greenhouse gases, you know, um, nitrous uh, dioxide, methane, um, you know, none of those are, are 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 counted in any of the models. Um, you know, there's also this idea that the baseline of 280 parts per million sort of says that you know everything, all the problems started when it assumes all the problems started with the Industrial Revolution. Um, and, and, you know, there are a lot of, there's a lot of evidence to show that, you know, deforestation, early agriculture, livestock, uh, you know, that, that is a, you know, that that's where it really started. Um, Mm -hmm. and that draws out a lot of considerations on, you know, that that is actually, those are the practices that are the problem. It was this, you know, large scale intrusion into the natural environment. Um, You know, another one is, you know, the politics of scale where the uh, science always focuses on figuring out temperature that is averaged across the globe. Uh, And so there's this idea, well, like, okay, if there is a, a decrease in temperature overall, fine but what about specific regions um, yeah. and you know whenever you do see any science that shows a focus on kind of more localized effects um, it's always the areas with you know very poor populations uh, with a lot of deprivation that are going to bear the brunt of the negative consequences mm-hmm. and so yeah those choices are are you know really, problematic and and i argue that those are really based on values of western science that can be changed
1: yeah and that's the, uh, the all of that there is the sort of um it's discussed a lot in chapter 4 right ontological heter- heterogeneity um which i found was a fascinating chapter and it, it so the the core of the problem here is that um The the mainstream science Or western science or patriarchal science Whatever kind of has this values This kind of ontological homogeneity and like values abstractions and unities and singularities and that, that valuing of those things then erases difference and specificity and um, and, and he- heterogeneous collections of objects that don't fit together well and don't fit together smoothly. But um, in the face of that challenge, what the mainstream science does is it just chucks it all in the bin and pretends it doesn't exist, right? <laughs> um
0: yeah, and it's it's almost this, you know, when you kind of say it all together and you list all of these things, you know, another one is is you know why why isn't there a kind of more parsing of the economic sectors and mm-hmm. you know the different uh, responsibilities of of rich and poor countries uh, mm-hmm. in producing these climate emissions? Not, nothing like that is discussed, and it it you know when you list it all, it almost makes you feel like you know, it's intentional because it allows us not to ask those very important questions about marginalization and vulnerability that is produced by the system that, you know, we are trying to correct by the same strategies that made the problems in the first place.
2: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And like, that's really where I I think there's this value to Bringing in the perspective of ontology, um, because you know you you kind of like when I first looked at sort of the chapter heading here, I was like, okay, well, ontological heterogeneity, just sort of this you know ontology that is more pluralistic and thinks about the variety of, of things in the world, is something we really um, saw a lot in our discussion of the cybernetic brain. Uh, But how does this apply to climate science? Um, And it's actually when, you know, you, you make that leap from here's the ontological perspective of valuing pluralism and then looking at these specific cases of like how science is done, where it's in a very like specific and concrete sense the practice of science is just like you know narrowing down the uh, number of variables they consider as relevant, and that leads to a more narrow perspective on how to address the problems that are identified through the science. So you know it's it's really just like this kind of ontological poverty is leading to impoverished solutions. I like that one ontological poverty. Yeah, that's a. That's a good
1: way of putting it.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 no, it, and and you know, it, even something as as fundamental as, as model disagreement. You know, mm-hmm. you know the fact that um, you know there is a lo- one of the areas in in um, climate engin- uh, geoengineering. You know, particularly the, um, the 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 approach that I I'm looking at. Um, there's a lot of model disagreement on um, Antarctic sea ice. Um, and you know, what different models have different results. And, you know, if we do institute geoengineering, this will happen or X will happen or Y will happen. So there's model disagreement. And, and, you know, I sort of make the argument that that is sort of seen as an ancillary part of the, the science or like on this one issue, there is model disagreement, but a feminist approach would sort of say, you know, that, that disagreement is, important and it doesn't mean that necessarily the science have su- has succeeded or failed. It, it just means that there is disagreement and now we have to think in a very creative way to maybe examine why that is or you know what's happening. And sort of sit with that, yeah.
1: We have to become comfortable with the world, right, as it as it actually is, and rather than become comfortable with these sort of frankly crazed fantasies of like um, you know simplistic, linear, unidirectional sort of forces and so on. Like um, when when it's laid, it, I mean, I've, again, it had so much resonance with what we read in Feenberg and the kind of cybernetic ontology there. But like again, when, when you laid it out on the page here, it just really sank in. It's like yeah, the, the way the way science is done, or the way the world is thought of is bizarre frankly you know
0: mm-hmm. it it um. is and, you know there's some interesting work in in things like paleoecology mm. and uh we're we're in, in you know you're relying maybe on local data sets and models and paleo um Ecology does this interesting thing where it looks at um, biodiversity as the core lens through which to study climate science and to gauge how it's changed, and so it's this idea that okay maybe we can look at fossils, and and you know sort of look at a more anthropological approach to our changing climate. Would that yield different results? Um, And so, you know, that's one of the, the ways that, you know, I think would be really like nonlinear methods, tacit Mm. practice, ethnographies, field work. Like there are so many alternatives that are rooted in feminist practice, but even go beyond it, um, you know, where chaos and dynamism is kind of incorporated that I think aesthetics as well. Like one of the really interesting things of um, the, the, uh, solar radiation management, uh, geoengineering is that one of the side effects will be that the skies will be white. So no more blue skies. Mm. Um, and so it's this, like, what, what are the aesthetic consequences of that? What, what, what would that change to the kind of felt, Humanity of people, and and I think mm. that you know that is a question that that is really interesting. Also,
1: yeah. Um, so there, there's one. I'm kind of uh, again aware of the listeners that may, it might be hard to kind of grasp onto the particulars of this discussion. But um, you have this good example here of like how um, the the traditional view of uh, of the of the world, of traditional ontology, uh, leads people to believe in this kind of like um, or did this this mistake about the process of egg fertilization. Can Can you maybe talk us through? the founding kind of assumptions that lead to this really bad conclusion or this this sort of bad understanding of how fertilization works.
0: Um, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, you know the, uh, it's actually an example that Longinot talks about. You're talking about like mm-hmm. actual conception,
1: right? The, 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 the monocausal thought pattern leading to this really weird understanding of how, how conception works, yeah.
0: Yeah, so it's this—that's um, that's, you know where a lot of the examination of discourse and and rhetoric comes in. That, you know, it's built into the way we talk about science. It's very gendered, and so, um, in kind of reproductive science, we have these very common tropes, and and it's in scientific textbooks. Like, it's always about the sperm and the egg, where you have the active sperm and the passive egg, which really mirrors that kind of gender ideology in real life, you know, the active man, um, and the passive woman. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you get that, you know, replicated in the wider cultural discourse. Um, and I always think about like, do you remember that? The beginning part of the movie, "Look Who's Talking." Mm-hmm.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where you
0: have, like the, the sperm and the egg, and the you know the egg is inert; it's passive; it's not changing. Um, and then you have the sperm sort of fighting its way to get there. That that's mm-hmm. a you know very gendered way in which science permeates into our larger culture of women of passive, it's, and men as active. And so, um, you know, there are other readings of the way and, and people have gone, you know, um, feminist scientists have gone back and sort of looked at the process itself and created these alternative tellings of, you know, the, the egg as active, um, yeah really compelling scientific evidence to show, you know, that, that there is a a kind of active, but then you're kind of reproducing the binary in a way. Um, -hmm. so now there's attempts to kind of go beyond why we binarize the active and the passive. Um, and so I think that's a really interesting, there, there's been a lot of this work in biology. Um, but not a lot in in the empirical sciences. Um, Agnes Kovac has done some interesting feminist analysis of the assumptions around um, gases, like you know, in, in sort of mm. chemistry, um, and also some some work being done on feminist physics. Mm-hmm um and uh so so yeah i mean getting in doing that kind of analysis in the hard science is much more difficult
1: mm-hmm. yeah and like um the sort of the root of the problem here is this um oh well one of the roots of the problem is this like binary stratified kind of thinking that's the the sort of default Um, Which actually hinders our understanding of the world Because the world is is not made up of binaries It's made up of these messy, detailed, reciprocal, resonant processes Where... The, the The multiple actors involved kind of draw each other together and in some ways cause each other and and so on and it's it, it like I think it's an objection you'll sometimes get from the the sort of the ignorant is like well, what would a feminist physics be you know you're you're trying to change the world to be feminist or something, but no it's that the world itself is ontologically rich in a way that our present sort of masculinist way of doing things cannot grapple with and so. When it can't grapple with things, it just erases them and pretends they're not there. And so, we're what we're proposing here is a a much richer and uh, more effective uh, kind of physics, right? As as a feminist physics.
0: Yeah, where we're talking about it as a, a, a you know feminism as a set of strategies, like rooted mm-hmm. in practice and rooted in you know material experience, and that um, it's you know the the kind of of, um, tactics and, and perspectives that have been garnered from feminism, you know, as a, as a kind of social praxis that can be harnessed to rethink some of our other knowledge production practices and that, that is what's feminist, not that, you know, Mm -hmm. we're going to infuse science with stereotypically feminine principles.
2: Right. Yes. And, and I mean, that really comes through in the sort of readings and critiques that you find or that you've, you've provided in this book, um, that it is those strategies that are at the core here. Um, and, and those can really help to sort of shake up and reconsider um, fundamental assumptions about what counts as evidence uh, what does not count as evidence, and what kind of approach should we take in in thinking about the these uh, these big problems? Um, so yeah, I, I found that to be really like I don't know, just very refreshing and, and um, quite I guess novel to my experience. That's like oh yeah, like um, you can you can take these kinds of like insights from feminist practice and move them into other domains of life that you wouldn't really think of right away.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, I actually did a, a series of lectures in the medical school at, at uh, Newcastle University where I teach. Um, and so there was a, a one particular lecture in which I was talking about uh, feminists approaches to science in, in medicine. Uh, and, you know, there was this one person who just would not agree with, you know, it, and, and, and mm. it, and kept on going back to the idea that I was making an argument for more feminine science. Um, mm-hmm. and, and would say, well, you know, the principles that you're articulating, doesn't that just, just mean good science. And I, you know, kept on going back to the fact that <laughs> yes, but that's not how science is practiced, and sort of <laughs> going through, uh, you know, the the actual fundamental structures of science. You know, in a Kuhnian sense, in a in a sort of big science sense, mm-hmm. uh, in an empirical sense, um, and that you know that's much different from the way that the the model that I'm putting forth, and it was just. In this like cognitive leap he could not take.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. That, that would be good science, exactly, if it were actually in practice. But my argument is that it's not being practiced precisely. Whoa, yeah,
0: yeah, and it's it's actually not. It's not in keeping with the principles and values that exist behind the science now. Like, it's mm-hmm. just those are not representative or, or or you know in the science at all, and. He he also would not accept or was kind of startled by the argument that there was no genetic component to race, and he was a biochemist, so it was this like I'll just
1: so like that's um, that's very interesting, right? And in that like, and um, I mean, I've I've sort of been in technology and the sciences and around and adjacent to these kind of orbits for a while, and like that's definitely a thing, right? Like it, the mainstream sort of ideology is like that the practitioners regard themselves as being very curious and open and, like, honest and intellectually honest and so on. But, like, a kind of sober analysis, I think, reveals that that's almost never the case. <laughs>
0: like, yeah, yeah. There's a lot
1: of ideological distortion going on in the the, in the sciences.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and absolutely. And I'm actually of looking um, at different you know areas in which I can apply feminist science studies and looking at nutrition and race as well um, and so looking at how um, you know genetic based arguments are working within the health industry that mm-hmm. you know there's a component in our genes that you know make it so that, We can have personalized diets that are, you know, based on our DNA and one component of that. And one of the ways in which we create populations is through markers of race and ancestry, which Mm -hmm. don't really map onto any sort of reality. It's used as a proxy, kind of reifies race. And so I'm looking at feminist science to critique that science as well.
2: Um, Yeah, and I mean, I found sort of for myself, like this this point that you bring up of uh, the monocausal pattern of thought that treats apparently different entities as versions of a standard or paradigmatic member of the domain, wherein differences are regarded as eliminable. Uh, so you, you take this exemplar and just kind of erase the differences that are maybe or maybe not apparent, depending on your standpoint, depending on your perspective, um, in order to come up with this kind of elegant abstracted model of what you're working with. Um, you know, like as much as I've, I've run into frustration with this kind of problem myself in, uh, academia, uh, trying to express things that, that don't conform to accepted standards. Um, or as much as we've talked about this on the show, uh, just having that, like, statement in this book really did make me think hard about, like, the degree to which those practices are still really deeply ingrained in my own thinking. Um, and and that, was, that was really kind of an eye-opener and really, really interesting.
0: Yeah, it's this idea that, that the heterogeneous doesn't, it doesn't dilute scientific focus. Um, Mm -hmm. And and the way that the science is structured, that, you know, differences should be made marginal and eliminated is a, you know, a a tendency and it's built into the science that, that we need to eliminate these small differences or big differences. And I think that is really bad scientific practice.
1: Mm-hmm. It is, yeah, and like I mean, it, it, it's very hard. Like I've, I've found it personally, actually, even in just sort of discourse with, um, with uh, friends and colleagues and stuff. It can be very hard to get this sort of point across because, like, of this like pathological attachment to like elegance and these kind of notions, these kind of platonic notions. That, like, I mean, I, I sort of ask people, like, okay, a thought experiment here. What, what if, with physics, when we we finally get to the root, if we if we ever discover the root of reality, and it turns out that the fundamental object in reality is disparity rather than unity. How would we ever deal with that Mm -hmm. and they just sort of like stare blankly it's like I don't know Um, I think this this is why I really appreciate the kind of uh, metaphysics of like uh, Deleuze right where foregrounding difference as the sort of engine of the universe and then seeing the unities and the commonalities as a kind of like fantastical overlay really um but of course you know in in our contemporary age we're stuck in the opposite right where the the unities and the abstractions are the real thing and the differences are just things to be erased which is which is crazy
0: yeah and that is is sort of interesting my my uh, doctoral work was on um sort of bringing into conversation uh, Derrida and Habermas, and one of the things that really drew me to Derrida was this kind of fundamental rethinking of reality and language into one that is premised fundamentally on difference and what that looks like, and so that's translated into, you know, the work that I'm doing now, um, and I think, you know, even Longino's kind of the way she talks about the context of, of justification and how, and this idea of underdetermination of theory by data, that the data that you have, um, you know, when you do an experiment or you engage in kind of any scientific practice, you are going to have a case where there are multiple theories that are going to explain that data in equally plausible ways. Mm-hmm. And maybe our approach shouldn't be to now let's narrow it down and eliminate the, you know, find what's right. Um, maybe it should be at that very root of, you know, when we justify the science, you know, we need to start from there and, and say, how are we choosing theory? What, what are the values that are? rooted in why can't we stay with multiple explanations until we go through a very thorough process that's not rooted on kind of Western Enlightenment notions of, of science as universal.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, and I, there's, there's one little tiny bit here that I, I think I'd like to call out as like, it's a wonderful way of putting this is that like, um, we should see difference as a resource, not a failure thing is a really nice way of encapsulating all that uh, sentiment
0: yeah and I think that you know that that filters out into you know converse, political conversations you know economic possibilities uh cultural difference you know that that kind of central way of looking at the world can can you know be transformative in a lot of ways
2: yeah um, absolutely and you know I've been thinking a lot in reading this text, uh, you know, at the time of recording, the election is still going on in Alberta. Um, and I've been kind of, you know, participating, trying to volunteer talking to people, all that kind of thing. Um, and you know, one of the major issues, of course, here in in Alberta, it's a major oil producer, uh, is, uh, the extent to which politics should be guided, by environmental science and climate science, um, because, you know, they're the, the positions of, of, of the parties by and large, um, fall along a spectrum of, of the degree to which they want to take this seriously. Um, you know, how much action is appropriate, uh, to curtail, uh, oil production, or how, how much should we restrict it? Um, and there's a lot of communication problems there. Um, but of course, you know, the problems are, are not limited simply to communication. There are class interests, there are material interests um, that are kind of <laughs> beyond the scope of polite discussion in terms of how they might be re- uh, resolved. You know, you, you, you go... Uh, um, I live, uh, near, uh, area that's quite bourgeois and you just like walk up there and you talk to people when you're out canvassing and, uh, you know, they're not going to have a nuanced discussion with you about, uh, climate science they just they just get very angry and shout at you and run you off their property um so uh you know that that is an existing problem but but that that is that that is
0: are you talking from experience
2: oh yeah absolutely this is this is this is this is personal experience like in the last two weeks of, of being yelled at yeah by some some rather unpleasant people um uh, <laughs> but yeah, um I think bringing in this perspective of um viewing difference as a resource and sort of thinking pluralistically from a pluralistic ontology um in the climate science it may have something to contribute in terms of the problems of communication and the problems of articulation and thinking in politics, because I think we're still at a level where, you know, even in the politics of the green party, um, which is a very minor party here has no chance of getting elected, but you know, is, is participating. Um, I think the environment or environmental issues are treated as a kind of, um, specific domain of politics um, and that kind of seems to me like it may be enforced by this focus on monocausality in environmental research that the ontological limitations of the research is creating a kind of limited political ontology to go with it.
0: Yeah, um, and, and I find that you know, it's making me kind of think about uh, a couple of things. One is, you know, how different techniques are being used to to ground climate science and sort of this this the whole uh, notion of of a disrupted climate um, based on activities that are, you know, are human driven. Uh, in in the way that the Green New Deal has been articulated, mm-hmm. where they're trying to connect the environment with, uh, like, labor, like, um, with, Mm -hmm. you know, a jobs guarantee, with, um, you know, a a new kind of economic development, and that it seems like we're, you know, grasping for different ways to embed the climate in um, more easily discernible, uh, or easily graspable, um, changes. And I think it's an interesting way to, you know, let's, let's ground it in, in labor, let's ground it. And, you know, how about grounding it in sort of actual kind of socialist practice and, mm. and, and process and what would that look like? Um, I think another, another way in which, something like the 280 parts per million, I think the original notion was that it was meant to be a kind of boundary object where it mm-hmm. is an easily translatable, you know, baseline through which to tell the public, okay, look at this number, and then we can kind of show you in, in visually um, compelling and and discursively compelling ways how it's changed. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't really worked. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's really interesting. That, and that, you know, brings me back the the last thing that it made me think about is um, sort of the more citizen science work um, where, you know, maybe we need to engage people in the science. And I know that Fienberg wrote a lot about, um, you know, the activities of the lay public in science around HIV AIDS in the nineties right. Right. and how, you know, they changed the way that, um, that trials, medical trials were run and, and you started to have the public involved in scientific conferences and taken seriously as actual contributors to knowledge. And you didn't have this bifurcation between the lay public and the expert as, you know, as exaggerated. And, and I think that might be an interesting way to think about the climate science as well.
2: Right, right. Yeah,
1: I think there's something very interesting there, right? That like I think is maybe worth camping out on for a second is that this um, the way the science is done as in this, this way that we've covered, right? This kind of very mono-dimensional sort of way of thinking leads the the presentation of that science to the public to look very mono-dimensional as well, and it makes it look like it's a, it's kind of not a solved problem, but it looks like it's all tied up. It's like, oh, it's carbon dioxide. We know we, that's the, you know it, it it makes it feel unproblematic in a way that maybe on one hand makes it sort of easier to ignore, and on the other hand makes it easier to just sort of attach the uh, climate stuff to uh, an infrastructure bill and just put it in front of Congress and just call it a done deal. That sort of stuff, right? That like the 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 the, the lack of resolution and dimensionality to the thought that feeds into the science is reflected in a kind of lack of dimensionality to the thought that, like, contemplates the science afterwards, and in the social sphere, right? Like, it's, um... Because, like, we're all, we're all sort of wondering, like, how is it that this massive, massive problem has gotten so little traction, or is only now starting to build traction? And I think that, that might be a partial sort of explanation for it, is that I don't know, there's, there's, there's a lack, a, just a sort of dearth of detail and, like, ontological sort of honesty in the whole thing.
0: Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, that, that there is some developing activism around it where you've got, um, uh, you know, civil society groups, like uh, I used to call it the ETC group, but it's actually the Etcetera group, Mm -hmm. which is um, an environmental um, organization that does kind of massive critiques of um, climate science in this this similar vein, uh, where they've they've actually got, uh, on part of their website, um, uh, an update on events in in geoengineering and things that are kind of going on in different media and everything. Um, There's also, you know... People like Clive Hamilton, who's um, a professor in Australia that's got a kind of more popular book, Critiquing Geoengineering, Um, but also Science for the People um, I mentioned um, before we we started. Last year, when because they did a relaunch, and last year they did a special issue on geoengineering rooted in kind of more socialist, Marxist approaches to science and climate change, where they talk about environmental capitalism and dispossession and consensus formation um, in a kind of more popular way engaging uh the public in a more kind of um yeah more more Marxist socially driven way.
2: Yeah. Um I, I think that could definitely be fruitful <clears throat> in in a similar way to, you know, some uh, some kind of revival of, of mass politics being necessary in this in this period um in order to kind of overwhelm uh, the barriers to action within the state and uh, within, you know, sort of the whole apparatus of lobbying and campaign finance and all that kind of stuff that, you know, the, the, like we, we can talk about ontological plurality until we're, you know, um, blue in the face. uh, But, you know, we also have to acknowledge that there have been massive campaigns of disinformation uh, information suppression, uh, (laughs) bribery, you know, like all, all, all these kinds of things. There have been enormous crimes against humanity that have been committed, um, that are very, you know, straightforward. Um, and these, these things are, they don't cancel each other out. They're, they're both true. Right.
0: And it's really, it's really interesting that, you know, some of the biggest advocates of this form of geoengineering are, you know, those think tanks and actors that, you know, just yesterday were climate deniers. Right. You know, it's like the American so Enterprise true. Institute, uh, Hudson Heartland Institute, um, so- you know, that that their support of it fits with this kind of mastery over nature ethos, and it's a way to you know, potentially make money. Um, So, and it also allows for, you know, continued high consumption and extractive economies, right? So it says um, justifies a delay in making any kind of structural changes.
2: Yeah, I I think it really echoes for me the way in which um, the like big business, large capitalist firms were able in, I think it was the 70s and 80s, to successfully download uh, the responsibility for recycling onto consumers um, so as to just not really shake things up at all, maintain profitability as much as they possibly could, um, offload costs to the public sector, offload costs to individuals, um, anything to just kind of keep business as usual the same old crap, Mm -hmm. as uh, Marx would say, uh, going.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's, you know, in keeping also with, you know, the, that individualizing of responsibility, it fits with that neoliberal ethos of, you know, making responsible the individual for actions that are structural in nature is not going to do much to change anything.
2: Yeah, and I think one point that you brought up that did seem very um, relevant to these kind of social conversations um, about science uh, was, I think this might have been something you took from Longino, but this idea of the knower being social, not the individual. Um, and I think part of the sort of climate denialism activity uh, that is exercised by sort of lay scientists, right, like members of the public who are climate deniers and who sort of, you know, read climate denier literature and educate themselves in it, um, is that they have this very individualistic uh, concept of knowing that kind of echoes back to like older kind of understandings of science. Um, and, And bringing in that idea of the social knower, I think, could really help to kind of you know, d- dissolve that that sort of uh, very like masculinist individualist uh, understanding of, of knowledge and of science.
0: Yeah, I, I actually you know, and that's in keeping with a long line of, of feminist uh, science, which you know is looking that sort of great man theory of science, where mm-hmm. you have a genius scientist in a lab doing all the work. Where it turns out, in a lot of you know, rethinking of scientific history. You have, you know, assistants that actually did most of the work. You've got, you know, women who transcribed everything. You've mm. got, you know, a, a, a lot of different marginalized groups involved in the process of science. You know, sometimes as as the objects of scientific experimentation uh, that are written out of the history, um, and that ethos of of the individual that that kind of very pernicious neoliberal. Um, construct is sort of the the source of a lot of the ways that the science has become distorted. And that's what I like about Longino is that she talks about how scientific truth is, it's this consensus-based model in scientific communities.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it absolutely goes back to like the interwar sort of like Neuraf style philosophy of science as well. Like there, there's there's an origin for this in the socialist movement as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we wrap up, Tina?
0: Um, There was just one, um, you know, other for for listeners, if they want to keep their eye out from there. There's um, a a test of the um, solar radiation management uh, geoengineering technique, which is supposed to take place, I think, in... In the southwest of the United States, maybe Arizona, um, it's uh, a scientist, David Keith, uh, out of Harvard, and a few collaborators. He's got sort of a geoengineering private company, and and he does a lot of academic research. Um, He's gotten a little bit of funding from Bill Gates as well, um, Mm -hmm. of uh, what's called SCOPEX, which is stratospheric controlled... Um, perturbation experiment, um, and their their plan is to launch a balloon 20 kilometers um, above uh, the Earth and release a small amount of calcium carbonate and then observe how the particles disperse and if whether and if they reflect um, sunlight, um, you know one of the, the, the things that they're, you know, trying to do and potentially rolling out, uh, climate engineering is, is, you know, to find particulates that would be long lasting and that would lead to a lot of reflection Mm. over long periods. Um, so that was one thing that, you know, has been in the works. Um, and the other one was a recent, um, recently in Kenya, um, there was a meeting on um, the UN Environmental Assembly, UNEA. Um, they met, uh, in Switzerland actually tabled a draft resolution on geoengineering governance, and they wanted to get the committee, um, the assembly, to produce a report on future geoengineering governance. Um, it was supported by Niger, New Zealand, Mexico, Mali, um, but it was blocked by the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, um, Brazil, um, mm-hmm. and the... Uh, the the ostensible reason was that it was due to fossil fuel and logging interests um, who didn't want. What what was interesting was that a lot of the fossil fuel companies. You might think that okay, you know they would want to kind of talk about it and, and lead the discussions, but there was this underlying. Uh, argument that they wanted to both continue admitting as long as possible mm-hmm. um, and they didn't want international regulation of new technologies
1: yeah so look up look out for apocalyptic headlines uh, coming your way soon as soon as that, that test starts um i wonder if this is how you know that <laughs> film the road and like it's a book as well but like that mysterious apocalypse that wipes out all life i wonder if this is it you know it's yeah. <laughs> <a geo-engineering experiment. laughs> we'll find out pretty soon um Yeah, uh, thanks, Tina, for joining us. Uh, It has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, We we should have you back on again uh, to uh, to talk about any old thing. And thanks, listeners, for coming along with us on this one too. Um, If you want to catch up with the show, you can find us on Twitter, GIunitPod. We're on Facebook as General Intellect Unit. And, um, you can catch us on all the podcast apps, you know, subscribe, share us with your friends, all that sort of stuff. Or you can go to patreon.com slash general intellect to support us, um, throw us a couple of bucks a month, helps to pay for, um books and stuff and um depending on how the edit turns out for this show i'm starting to realize i might need to get a new computer because the fans on this one are going crazy and i think they'll show up in the recording <laughs> so pay for that too um but yeah and also you can check out our sister shows at emancipation.network on the web um there's a couple of cool shows on there swampside chats and from alpha to omega um they're good people and they're good shows Uh, so check them out. And, um, you know, guests get the last word. So, Tina, where can people find your work?
0: Uh, Well, you can go to my Newcastle University um, sort of staff profile that has, you know, a lot of my publications. I've got an academia.edu account. I'm on Twitter uh, at TSikka, T-S-I-K-K-A, and on Facebook uh, under Tina Sikka as well. Um, Yeah.
1: Superb. Uh, Yeah, thanks very much again, and uh, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Bye.